Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. My name is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps a fundraiser perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, meaningful relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong givers. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insights into the hearts, minds, and connections of their donors. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Podcast listeners, the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow is finally back on the schedule. We have several dates confirmed. Since 2014, our team has been providing high-quality one-day roadshows in partnership with nonprofit leaders who want to showcase their space and provide thought-provoking and highly interactive fundraising training in their nonprofit community. Our roadshows have been described by our guests as hands-down the best professional development experience that they have ever been a part of. This experience has been described as challenging assumptions with conversation-inspiring content and new ways of thinking. If you would like to register for one of the upcoming stops on the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, just visit the link in the show notes. Hi, Paulina. I am delighted to have you with me as my guest today on the Fundraising Talent Podcast. You and I have just met. We've uh, we've agreed to coordinate our schedules here at the last minute. You're just coming off of a uh, some some. Uh, what you call a staycation. We totally all get what that is. Um, and so I'm really grateful that you found the very back end of your week back in the office to um, to have this conversation with me. And we're going to be talking a little bit. I'll make sure that everybody knows about the upcoming roadshow that's going to be in Austin. You're in Austin and friends with the organizations that are hosting. Um, so I'm just delighted that we've got this few minutes to talk. Paulina, would you mind just uh, before we uh, dive into our topic of conversation, would you mind just introducing yourself to our listeners? Absolutely. I'm so delighted to be here. My name is Paulina Artieda. I am the executive director um, of the New Philanthropist, and we're an organization that helps nonprofit boards become more diverse, inclusive, and equitable. So we're based out of uh, Austin, Texas. We primarily work in Austin, Texas, but... But yeah, a lot of our work can go, you know, outside of Austin. So, so yeah, it's been a, it's, it's been quite a ride. I, I love the work I do. Yeah. So I suspect our conversation is going to drift a little bit in that direction, but you've got to unpack what the, the new philanthropy, when I saw that, I got on your website. Um, I thought, okay, this, this, this organization has a story similar to our friends at Mission Capital who are hosting the event. Um, but tell us the, you know, in two minutes, tell us what the story is there. That's fascinating. Sure. Well, you know, as you can 
as you might know, there's been, uh, there's data out there for sure. It's primarily that most nonprofit boards, it's about 84%. I think it was a uh, board source leading within 10, 2017. They put out some information that, um, 2021 actually, uh, that 78% of Boards, 70% identify as white or Caucasian board members. Sure. And so when we look at the, the demographics of who they serve, we know that there's a diversity gap there. And so what we primarily focus on is bringing that lived experience so that the decision makers um, of those, those organizations that carry out everything from budget decisions to program decisions to even just in general – uh, resource decisions, they are really representing and making those decisions in, in line with what is that community going through, what what connection they have to that community. And so when you're not representing or you don't have that lived experience or that diversity of thought, it's really hard to to under to to make those decisions with the most thought and insight and the best interest at hand for them. So we're there to do that and to create cultural shifts as well within that leadership in order to ultimately serve those communities that best. Um, and, and, and we do that in, in many ways, but predominantly it's in three ways. We do leadership development for leaders of color and help them and gain access and opportunity to boards. We work with nonprofit boards and help them create those cultural shifts through DEI training and, and um, in general, just redefining practices. And then we do board matchmaking. So we also bring them two together and helping them in meaningful ways make those connections of bringing leaders of color onto nonprofit boards. Okay, so I know where we're going. I, I I know where you come from, uh, as do our uh, as do our listeners, and um, and I have to first and let me let me make sure that uh, that you're you're a, so I had Madge on the podcast here. They're hosting the roadshow next week, and um, I had them. So your organization and Mission Capital, in many ways, are very complementary. Uh, I have to imagine that there's uh, because a lot of what they're talking about is a capacity builder organization. Um, their their aspirations are very consistent with yours. So, um, Paulina, we ask our guests to come on here with a big idea or bold opinion. Um, I don't necessarily always know exactly what it what that opinion is, and we uh, we let the conversation emerge from there. Um, sometimes the you know when I when I'm meeting a new friend like you, I sort of on my toes, and I'm like, okay, let's see where this is going to go. So, what do you got for us today? Oh, and I just love that. I love that you you present it this way. Um, so my, my question or big bold opinion is, is really around how can we redefine fundraising or fundraising practices through, you know, equity and inclusion and, and in a sense, the, the practicing and the values behind equity and inclusion. Yeah. So Paulina, we talk about that. A so I teach uh, a lot of my listeners know that I teach uh, a section, two section of the nonprofit management course over at the local college in the spring. Um, and that's one of those conversations that we're more consistently having. And I can tell you, it's sort of um, creates sort of a mind boggling conversation, depending on the, the mix of my students in the classroom, um, because I'm able to bring I'm just sort of putting some layering uh, on, onto this. I'm able to bring an awareness of sort of where the, who the donor is historically for most organizations and who someone like myself and yourself might want the donor to be in the future. Um, 
And those are two very different donors. Am I right? Well, yeah. And if you, if you take a, let's take a step back and look at this historically, right. Um, and yeah. how that in a sense structure was set up. So me yeah. growing up and looking at boards in general or nonprofits in general, um, when it came to leadership or those boards, I definitely did not see anyone like there on there that looked like me. I didn't feel included. And it felt very much like a wealth circle, like wealthy yeah. people that wrote big checks. Yes. <laughs> and so it, it didn't feel like a place that I belonged. And even as I went through my career, it wasn't necessarily that I was ever asked to join a board. I felt like I had to really be able to write 10 $5,000 checks to even be able to join. So it was almost like a pay to play kind of scenario, but also like a scenario of like, how many connections do I have in my network to really bring in some big money and big bucks? So that's the structure that's been very historical within the nonprofit sector. And, and while in a sense it served it for fundraising, it hasn't really served it for representation or lived experience. Um, because not everyone can do that. Um, and, and I think that's where we got to challenge those, those norms, right. And challenge how we can really restructure that and see if there's a way of, of even, even looking at older models that have existed within communities of color where fundraising is prevalent when money does come in, just not necessarily in those ways or, or those norms that have happened. So Paulina, you, when I started in fundraising 25 years ago, I probably recall, you know, probably one of those sort of fundraising 101 workshops or how to get your board into fun, whatever that, you know, whatever that initial track that we all got into. A lot of us heard that that old mantra of get, 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 give or get off. And I don't think this would have been right around the turn of the century when I got into fundraising. I don't think any of us realized that we were when we say that. And I'm guessing you would agree with me that when we say give, get or get off, we're essentially saying make sure that your board is uh, you know, generally older white people, uh, you know, generally older white wealthy people, uh, you know, and some communities are diversifying and the wealth is certainly not all held in the hands of white people. That's a, that's a stereotype that we can probably unpack. But is that one of those is that one of those things that we have to unravel and realize that give, get or get off is probably not necessarily the criteria with which we want to recruit recruit to our board? I mean, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the many, right? I mean, it's give, get or get off, or it's also, you know, unlimited term limits. Yeah. <laughs> no, li no limits, right? Uh, it's yeah. Passing down your board chair, like through an ex like from from family member to family member or colleague to colleague, the good old referral system. Yeah, to yeah. Where, to where not necessarily, uh, you know, you bring in somebody outside of your silo. Yeah. Um, and that can, that can keep that well circle very close knit as well. Right. Um, so the give and get, I mean, it's something that it's a barrier. It's a barrier for many, for many because, and, and I think it's reported somewhere that even with a give and get and get off, most board members don't necessarily meet all that. No. Uh, no. And, and, and so <laughs> it's almost like, <laughs> you know, not everyone pays all of it or even pays it at all yet you're still we're still not offering those type of uh, those opportunities for people that can share that lived experience or those insights and still raise plenty of money for that organization 
right? Um, is that so is yeah. that is it, Paulina? Is that what you <laughs> you know? Some of the training that we do, uh, responsive. Some of the training that we do is we basically one of the things I'm always saying when it comes to boards. I'm like, let your boards just generally let let them off the hook because you're absolutely convinced that your boards are going to do things that they're not actually going to do. Um, and I don't think I have ever worked for or consulted with a board that ever fulfilled that. I mean, is that some of it that you're just deconstructing just completely flawed assumptions anyway that 40, 50, 80, you know, whatever percentage of your board, they're not going to live up to these crazy expectations anyway, no matter who they are? Exactly. I mean, I think we have to relook at this whole model and see what works and what doesn't work in an equitable way. Um you know, is it is it a certain amount that needs to be fulfilled or is it what can you give? What can you give in a meaningful way that works for you? Um, and, and what is how do we define currency? Is there social currency that you yeah, yeah. is there skill set currency? Some nonprofits actually need skill sets um, and, and actual in-kind services of uh, talent to come in and, and be the legal services that you need on there. And that is worth money, right? Um, lived experience is valuable. It is yeah. a currency. And so it's really redefining what that currency is, um, as well as the network. You know, your one connection of, you know, maybe somebody in tech is just as, as valuable as 30 people in the community that are community activists that will give just as much, right? Um, if anything, the awareness builds even more in that side, right? So it's redefining on what this give and get is and why is that necessary and structured in a way where it's based on the high, the highest amount wins or looks the best or is held to be the, uh, this power dynamic of being, being the one with the most. Um, and so I think that's where we, we need to look at bylaws. We need to look at practices and just rethink this through equity again. Yeah. Inclusion. And really see uh, what works. I, I've spent a lot of time. I'm working. A lot, most of my listeners know that I've been working on a writing project about how a lot of the marketplace logic and consumer logic sort of creeps into the nonprofit sector and gets in our way. And it, it didn't occur to me until I'm sort of simmering here on this conversation that we're having that in many ways we've commodified board membership because we've been, we've essentially said you know, buy your privilege to sit on this board. And that's my, that's my overall critique about the way that we've done a lot of things when it comes to the nonprofit sector and fundraising in particular is we're basically saying buy this privilege to sit on the, to sit on the board. Um, so where are you seeing this work? Like what are the, what are the exciting case, case, case studies where you're seeing this work? You know, I'll tell you, it's the smaller BIPOC-led nonprofits that are really testing this out. And I'll say testing this out because there is no right model right now, right? There is no yeah. model that says this works. And, but the, the beauty part of it is even our, you know, within Euphanthropist, even our own board. We're yeah. figuring this out as we go. Sure. We're, we're redefining our bylaws as much as we can legally, right? Because there are all legalities around how much you can do um, and how we can. Um, not only like, so for example, with us, we will never have a gala. That's just not our, that's just not who we are, not how we want to be inclusive of the community we serve. Yep. Um, a gala is just going to always kind of bring into this, the system of hierarchy, right? Yep. With 
that that we don't represent as an organization. And so we want it to be more of a community celebration. So it's even choosing the language with fundraising. What is that language that you're choosing when you um, push this out? When you um, even talk about the community, sir, what is that language that you're using when you're talking to donors? Um, that itself needs to be very much more uh, uh, honoring and culture honoring versus, um, you know, exposing of, of stories that, that may not be putting them in the best light or, or just in, in general how we tell stories about the communities that are being served. So I think it's really uh, bringing in that lived representation, bringing in those insights, but also questioning everything that's, that has been a, a part of um, just in general the norms. Of, of fundraising and really seeing what is uh, who's at the table and who's not and why. Right. Mm-hmm. And if they're not at the table, asking yourself why and what's keeping them from the table. If it's a fundraising practice, like they don't, they can't for some reason, you know, provide $5,000 for their dues, then you need to question that and, and, and basically redefine that. Um, if it's because they need to, fundraise or, or they need to have fundraising skills or connections. Let's redefine that because that's not, that's a barrier that it's, it's just, that can be rethought into how other, there are many other ways that they can um, bring in those types of connections or bring in other skill sets that can bring you connections. Right. Um, so, Paul, yeah. Paulina, are there people? So if I thinking about my own experience, I've sat on boards and I've not sat on boards. I've sat on boards that I didn't, that soon after I was on them, I was like, okay, I don't want to, I don't really want to do this anymore. But I have to imagine that there's plenty of people like myself. So I'm that, I, I sort of fit in that privileged white spot, right? And, and I have to imagine there's people like myself that if I walked into a board, into a board meeting for the first time, and it's made up of everybody that looks like me, I, I tend to think that there's probably a lot of my peers in this space and it, our peers, your peers and my peers, they're just not, they're going to react if, I, I don't, I don't want to be on that board. I, that's not the board I'm looking to be a part of. Um, it's, it's not a norm. It's not a norm that seems acceptable to me anymore. Are, are you finding that, that the person who usually like me might sit on a board is saying, I don't want to be on that board anymore. If they all just look, look and live like me. <sighs> I live in Texas. Don't forget that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, I know. You, know- but you, you live in Texas, but you live in Austin, Texas. You're not I in Dallas, Austin, Texas, and you're not in Houston. So, um, um, you know, it, it's, it's interesting. I think, I think, um, Absolutely. Now that is being questioned a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think we are having, you know, you know, 2020 was of course uh, a year that had us all question everything around us, but also I think little by little, even foundations are starting to push back a lot more on nonprofits, the demographics of their boards and so forth. Yeah. Um, there is this want of, of making sure that there's just more diversity of thought, right? Of thought in mm-hmm. general. Yeah. Of um, of taking care of communities in, in better ways. And so I, I the the biggest hangup though I see is they that most nonprofits don't know how. 
how do we diversify our board? Okay. How do we get started? Yeah. And it's in, and I can totally empathize with that because it's like, you don't want to be in that, in that, in that weird space of tokenism. Like, do we yep. just go up to, you know, people of color and be like, do you want to join our board? You're, <laughs> you're black. Can you do that? And it's like, right, right, of course, right. you don't want to ever do that. Do not ever do that. Right. Of course. Um, but I always take it back to like, you build relationships, right? It's, it, that's what it comes down to, whether you're, you're looking for new board members or not. It's all about building relationships. Do not expect people to come to you. You have to go out and you have to build and forge relationships. And that may be with affinity groups that specifically yeah. serve um, communities of color. They may be with other organizations, sister organizations that serve communities of color. So it's really about getting out there. And if, um, if you're uncomfortable doing that, you find friends to go do that with, or you find, uh, you learn new skills around that. So, so it's really about building relationships, but it's also about understanding how to create cultural shifts on your board, because even as you bring in new board members, it doesn't mean the problem is solved, right? There's that inclusion factor that will completely discourage people of color from continuing to serve on that board. Because just because you're on a board and you got asked to be on a board doesn't mean that you will not, you will, you will come across microaggressions. You will come across, um, you know, these biases and, and feel like you're not, you're just there just to be there and yeah. to be, to check off a box. So there has to be this, this want of wanting to change those dynamics and wanting to, wanting it, wanting it to be more inclusive. So, Paulina, are you seeing yourself, because of the type of organization that you're representing, and I only ask this because I've done this myself in some of my placement work with uh, development officers, fundraisers, I have been able to say to candidates, uh, women of color in particular, I I really, you're amazing, and this is th- this would be a great opportunity for you, but putting you in this role is going to set you up. I mean, are you finding yourself in that similar place where you're talking to say a woman of color as a, as it relates to an opportunity to sit on this board, you know, whatever that board happens to be. And you're like, that, you know, you're going to be a token. You're just there to sort of play a part that they want you to play. Um, I mean, I remember a conversation I had with a previous podcast guest, a woman of color, and she's basically saying, I don't want to play that token role. Um, and I'm going to be counting on people. Um, you know, I, this, this, that's the role I was playing with this particular candidate. I was like, you don't want this job. You don't want this job. And this was my client at the time. Um, so absolutely, we do, we do not want to cause more harm. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, so for that reason, like one of our approaches is to bring that leadership development. And when I say leadership development is not to help leaders of color become better leaders and skill sets, but it's become better leaders through DEI. Right. Yeah. And that is to help them understand how to navigate those spaces where they will maybe um, or most likely encounter some of those instances of uh, tokenism and how to handle those instances in a way where um, it favors them, where it, in a sense, helps them come to a conclusion where they are are less harmed. And it also helps them um, bring, you know, create allyships. To where they can they can be a part of that cultural shift and change, so it empowers them to let them know that the the cultural values, the leadership cultural values that they bring to the table, are important, are needed, 
are they should be wanted and that itself that little piece of confidence makes such a huge difference in, in how they even serve because they want to serve um and so i think i think just by bringing in that training and those workshops that we do it's really given them the ease to to want to even just you know, yeah, I know that I'm going to face some of these issues, but I'm going to be okay. And they know that we are going to be a continuous resource throughout their journey in board leadership. That's not a problem. They know that we're there for them. So, so I think that's one piece. The other piece is that when we do board matching, we're very clear in asking everything centered around the board, board prospect of color. So everything centered around where do they want to go? Do they want to go on to a nonprofit that has had some DEI training or one that's at a beginner stage? Or one that's completely advanced, and we're never going to put them in a match them with a nonprofit that that they don't wish to like. You know, like I don't want I don't want anybody who's just starting out. I want somebody advanced, then we're going to make sure that happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's shift gears for a minute and talk about the because this is this is something that I've wrestled with with some of my guests, and I still haven't gotten uh, transition. So, so it's, it's essentially the DEI conversation that we've been routinely having here on the podcast tends to be centered around board, you know, the board dynamics, who's in what seats on the board, the executive director seats, you know, who's in the leadership seats. Um, it was a remarkable, you know, I think that's a remarkable story to have listened to Madge talk last week about her role in leadership there at Mission Capital and other places. Um, but changing the demographics of our donor pools is a long, in my mind, is just a longer term strategy that has to be committed to over the long haul. Am I right? Okay, and so I think this is something that, you know, for the new philanthropists, we've, we've challenged ourselves with a couple of things. Well, one, we know that historically fundraising has been there again, in, in not the norm ways that we look at fundraising. Like if you look yeah. at communities, there's been fundraising through faith organizations, right? Yes. Or through your community like events, right? So fundraising yes. has always been there through those through those donors. Yes. Right? Because they're just not accounted for. Those stories are not told under that fundraising lens, I guess you could say. Right. Um and money has been raised. Tons of money. Yeah. Um so I think it's just more about how do you include those those donors within your scope of fundraising where it's a relevant connection, not just uh, come in and figure out the system of fundraising. It's more like, no, let's let's shift our system of fundraising to include how those donors already know how to give money. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's one way. And the other way that we've really kind of looked at uh, fundraising for us is fundraising with engagement, Right. Because I think what we've seen now, uh, especially for us that we have a younger fundraising pool, is that they don't fundra- the donors don't just want to give money, but they want to be involved in meaningful ways, especially with our work, where, where it's yeah. very much more centered around even systemic change, right? They yes. don't want to just, just give money. They want to be a part of that movement. And so uh, very much like, uh, it's, for example, we have a corporate membership program where we raise funds through corporations. But a part of that is we're asking corporations to one, uh, help us identify how many board members do you have on your, in your business? How many, how many, how many of your employees are board members, right? And if not, let's start giving them 
you know, let's start providing workshops to bring board awareness to those ERG groups or IRG groups. Yes. And so that engagement piece is already starting a donor-based pool for us of where not only are they engaging with us through that awareness, building of board awareness, but also on how they're finding a cause or a community engagement piece through us on how to give back to other organizations and become involved through their leadership skills and not only volunteering as a board leader, but then from there, there's like, you know, tentacles of networking and, and them spreading the word about different organizations that they want to share where they're, where they're being leaders at. And so it's, it's always about the heart and the why, right? And the why is as much as important to us from a board leader to just a regular uh, donor who's giving money. Why is, and how can we tap into that why in a different way in that engagement piece? I had a woman of color speaking to my students a couple of years ago about a about an intentional pursuit of donors of color. So she was a, she was in a major gifts officer role, and I invited her in. She and I had worked together before, um, and I knew that she would bring this up because I admired what she was doing. But she, you know, in an effort to diversify the pool, I would guess that she was probably, she was in a traditional quote unquote major gifts officer type role with a assigned portfolio of donors, and she described to me um, or described to our students. Sort of a subtle, not a, I don't know how explicit she was with her employer, but she was, you know, she was recruiting donors of color into the organization. Um, you know, she was kind of like what we were talking about a few minutes ago with the, uh, with the, you know, she doesn't walk up to the donor and say, will you give us, you know, $500 because you're black. She was, she was pursuing relationships, um, with donors is, is that converse is that the type of conversations organizations are having having or or is that a direction we're going to end up going is that we're going to pursue donors in order to diversify our pools of donors we're going to be more deliberate just like we've been deliberate in the past with you know i mean when i started this paulina you know this when i started this work 25 years ago we were looking at zip codes and we knew who the zip you know we knew where people lived and what kind of affluence they had um, are we moving in that direction or is there something else out there? You know, I think, I think again, it's like you mentioned relationship building. I think it's, it's transparency because the minute you walk away from trying to be transparent, people can smell right away. Right. right. <laughs> like, yes, yes. Why? Like, don't, don't try to fool me. Yes. Um, but yes. it's also, it's like community building, like how it's showing up at the community. It's showing yeah. up at the place of breaking bread. It's not necessarily I love expecting that. donors to come to you. Yeah. Um, it's so key to do that. It's, it's super key. It's, and you know, it's going to take effort, but I think it's, it's such a huge learning experience. It's not only learning experience in terms of you, like learning about different cultures, but different ways of leadership, right? You don't, you learn about different leadership, about different traditions, about different, um, just community insights, um, as well as you show up and you, sh you show that you care, you become involved and it has to be an authentic part of you showing up. It can't be just because you're checking off a list. You have to want to do that and your, your donor, and, and then they will show up for you. You know, it's, it's very much gonna, um, as long as you're transparent, you're there to build relationships and you're there cause you really care. The, the buy-in and the, and the, 
the give back is going to be very, very much more, right? Um, but you have to be willing to do that and you have to be willing to do that in a way where it's significant, right? It can't be a one-off too. It can't be just one time that you do that. <laughs> it has to be very much intentional. Um, like you said, uh, ongoing way of building that relationship. You know, it remind. I, I remember, um, I remember a conversation I had with a, a very affluent individual who's providing advice in the fundraising community. She's a, she's a very wealthy donor and she gives money. And, and one of the thing, one of the conversations she and I had, um, Lisa is her name, Lisa Greer. She and I had this conversation on the podcast about the idea that to get really good at this, this is, this is probably where I always wanted fundraising to be. And maybe part of this conversation that we're having this sort of the shared conversation that we're all having, it'll get there. Is, is what what she and I sort of centered around is we have to learn how to go about things indirectly. Um, you can't come at people because they're they fit a particular profile, and you can't necessarily come at them because they're rich and wealthy and live in the right neighborhood. You have to learn how to come through that, you know, that indirect sort of way, and you got to come through it in relationship. And if you don't know how to do it, you're probably not going to be very good at this work. I mean, is that basically what we're talking about? I mean, at, at the core, yes. <laughs> right. That, cause that's, I mean, I she's mean, a, she's a, she's a, she's a very affluent, you know, she lives, she's one of the 1% lives in Beverly Hills. She's published a book. She's told the world that she's got wealth, but she's also saying on my podcast, look, you're not going to be able to come at me and just say, I want to build a relationship with you because you're rich. And, and that's kind of what we're talking about here. I'm not going to be able to recruit you, Paulina, to my board just because, you know, you're a woman of color. It's not going to work. Right, right. You can smell. You can smell right. Smell through, it, right. right. <laughs> I can right. smell right through it. Yeah, We're going to have to genuinely want to be in relationship. Yeah, you're gonna. You're gonna really. You know, you're gonna show up at the new philanthropist events and really care about what I do through that organization. You're gonna want to sit and have coffee with me and really learn about me and who I am and why. Um, you know, you're just. You're just gonna have to get to know me a little better. And it's not going to be, and I'm going to, it's going to have to be genuine. Right. Um, and, and I think it's just also, it's be, I'm not saying that it's beyond relationship building, but it's because it has to be a lifestyle for you. Okay. DI is a lifestyle. It's not meant to be a formula that you take into effect. Right. Um, right. It's meant to be, this is how I want to see the world. Okay. Um, you diversify your dollar. Okay, which means you support businesses of color throughout, which means you go and eat at different places. It's not the norm, the most best. It's not the most, uh, the, the top 10 restaurants that always get featured that are all white owned. It's all different types of restaurants. You definitely want to make sure that as an influencer, as a leader, you open doors for all, right? That you have conversations that are deep rooted with all. It's just, it's a matter of reading books from different perspectives of having yep. art hang on in your home from different artists. So it, I think the more you can tap into uh, how this becomes a lifestyle, the easier it will come to you, right? It won't be such a awkward way of operating. It will be a fluid way of who you are as a person. And so one of the things we do when we work with nonprofit boards is every board member takes an assessment, a cultural competency assessment. 
Yeah. And so that cultural competency assessment is going to let you know where you are within the spectrum of phases of how well you adapt with cultures. Um, and you get a work plan based on that, like based on where you're at. This is what you can do to help move up that spectrum of becoming more adaptive to cultures and, and become more um, just fluid in that space of, of, you know, being able to understand and integrate within cultures, different cultures. And I think that work plan is what's necessary for everyone, right? Because I feel like it, it can be very awkward, but once you understand and hold that empathy, which empathy is probably the big, the most important word that we can all use nowadays, um, the more you can have that, I think the more it will be just a part of who you are and ma- making those relationships happen and just showing up and learning, having a curiosity around these things. Is yeah. So I know some of my listeners and I know some of them are itching to have this asked. Does the rich white guy still have a place on the board? Absolutely. I mean, our philosophy is not let's take people away. It's how do we add seats to the board, right? I like that. How can we add more seats to the board? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I think that's important. We want to add more lived experience. We want to add more insights. We want it to just be a great conversation of different perspectives. So I do think the, the rich white, white man should, should still have a seat on the board. I just also think that, um, <laughs> you know, definitely don't, don't lead by your instinct, <laughs> your gut instinct. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause that can, that can normally, you know, lived experience. Is, if you don't have the lived experience in that space, when it comes to communities of color, you don't lead as a white person. Don't lead by your instinct is my yeah. piece of advice because you don't have the lived experience to lead by your gut instinct. I, I have to imagine the the aspiration is uh, what, in the midst of the in the midst of the pandemic when there were a lot of these conversations were starting to simmer up and really becoming top priority. Um, um, I, I, re- I repeatedly said that there was, I sensed what I, what I referred to as sort of a qualitative turn, a qualitative turn in our fundraising aspirations that we were sort of qualitatively looking at all the myriad of things that we do and we were going to get qualitatively better at it because there's, you know, I think about the community I live in here. I live in a, I live in a rich white man's town and I, I gotta be honest, you know, I know, I know enough of them that they're tired of being recruited to boards because they're a rich white man. I mean, that's, that's been their experience too, um, is look, I know, I know, you know, what's in my pocketbook and that's why you're recruiting me to this board. And so maybe we're all just going to get, you know, Paulina five years out, are we just going to have all gotten better at this? You know, I, I say that if you're tired of being asked, I think it's uh, it's one of those um, opportunities to become an ally in this yeah. piece of work yeah. where you start very much um, your journey of how you can open doors for others, but not just open and introduce, but open and mentor um, others into board service. Because I think that's, that's, you know, our mentorship program has been a phenomenal program for, for the philanthropists, but I see that it's needed all across. Like, it's not just like, it's just needed for leaders of color. Mentorship onto boards is like, whether you're, you're uh, a person of color or not, you probably should just have. A lot of that, uh, board service can be intimidating for all. So I think it's an opportunity as an ally, um, 
become a mentor in that space of, of bringing in new leadership into boards and, and introducing more people. Oh, that's so okay. Okay, I don't want to miss that, and that's a great point to because I don't want to miss what you just the uh, the advice you just gave. I don't want my listeners to miss that. So, so, see the old white guy here in central Pennsylvania who's routinely getting invited to be on boards. You're suggesting to him that's totally insightful. Um, Stop accepting board seats and become an advocate and ally to putting people who don't look like you in those seats and convincing those boards who are coming to you. Correct me if I'm articulating this, in, <laughs> but that's so insightful. And it's, it's, it's very simple too. Um, you know, Mr. Smith, when somebody asks you to go on a board, refer them to, <laughs> to somebody who looks like Paulina rather than somebody who looks like Jason and help that and help Paulina maybe shine in that role better than Jason might. Am I right? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Mentor them and give them the insights you know, kind of uh, check in on them along the journey and be like, hey, how's that board leadership position going? I love that. Yeah. Do you know, do you, let me, let me make sure I prep you a little bit. Let me tell you about the board dynamics on this board. I know, I know five of the, of the 10 people there. This is what you're going to have to look out for. This is so-and-so, you know, give them the insight that um, you already have because you've sat on all the different boards with all those other different people, you know, 10 times already. Um, that's what's needed. It's that it's, it's not, not only the mentorship, but it's almost that, again, that relationship building that you can give someone that, that heads up. Right. And I promise you that what you're doing there is not only encouraging, but you're also teaching that person what they're going to do when they're ready to open doors and when they're ready to hand off their leadership position or their legacy to someone else. So I have to imagine, Paulina, to wrap up on that thought, if an affluent white woman or man from Austin knocks on your door and says, I want to know how to do that role, that like the smile on your face right now, that gets you excited. <laughs> if somebody says, I want to learn how to sort of get out of the way or open a, help open a door for someone else, you'd coach them along in how to do that? Absolutely. We have workshops. Workshops, the equity chair workshops that we have, um, help you do that. Absolutely. That's fascinating. Yes. Uh, that's, that's, yeah, or if they, if they currently sit on a board, we can go and help their board understand yeah. how to do that. Yeah. Yes. Yes. We're here for them. Paulina, I always wrap up for people in roles like yours. I always wrap up with, um, so we get 150, 200 downloads a day on the, on the entire library. And there's somebody listening today that might reach out to you and want to have a conversation. Who is that person you most likely want to hear from? Oh my goodness. I want to hear from everyone, but if you really want to get involved <laughs> with a new philanthropist and want to be in a, a supporter and an advocate, you know, um, we want to hear, you know, from, from people that are, that understand the complexity of our work yeah. as donors, um, that understand that, uh, this takes time, that the change that we're looking to create has a ripple effect. So if you're, if you're someone that's looking to, to really make a change with us, whether it's through, you know, donating, whether it's through coming in and wanting to participate in our programming, whether it's referring a nonprofit board to us, um, please reach out to us. That's, that's what we're looking for. We're looking to do it together. We cannot do this work alone. That's one thing I know. And that's why with marriage and mission capital, sorry about that. We got, we got a fan. 
Yeah, we, he's awesome. excited. He's excited. <laughs> he, you know what it was, Paulina. He heard me. T- he heard me say that the conversation would be forty minutes, and he's been keeping a watch on the clocks. <laughs> yeah. So we we know that with Madge and Mission Capital, like you know, our our work we can't do alone. So the more the merrier. You know, we we got we have an opportunity more than ever now to really make a change and and just just do this together. So yes. Please reach out to us. It's uh, org. Paulina, it has been a pleasure. Thank you for finding the time on the back end of your week. Take care of that puppy, and uh, and we'll look Thank forward to you. seeing you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.